0: amen so we're studying through the book of hebrews together and we said on the first week that this is a letter written by a pastor and the pastor is a jewish jesus follower living somewhere around the ancient capital of the roman empire the city of rome and the congregation that he writes this letter to is also a congregation of jewish jesus followers And so what that means is that as these Jesus followers are reading this letter, some people have said it's maybe more of a sermon, actually. As they're reading this letter that the pastor wrote, they have in the back of their minds the extensive and excellent education they've all been given into the Hebrew Scriptures. We we call it the Old Testament. They would have called it the Scriptures because that was the Scripture available at that time. And so we had a little kind of thought experiment. If you're one of the women or men in this congregation reading the letter to the Hebrews, as you're reading it, the pastor quotes the Old Testament time after time after time, more quotations of Old Testament scripture than almost any other part of the New Testament, which means that for us, the congregation, we're going to regularly have our minds drawn back to our days of education as children when we were first taught and memorized and learned to understand these scriptures. So let's just have a little fun with this. Imagine that you're reading the letter to the Hebrews and it brings you back to your childhood when you were a young boy or girl going to the synagogue for education every day and one of your favorite times was Torah time which we don't know if it ever actually happened, but I really want to believe it did, I know that you would have been taught Torah. So here we go. It's much like circle time, except it's Torah time. I'm really happy about this whole idea, by the way. So all right, kids, today in Torah time, we are in the book of Exodus, and we've come to the story of Moses and the water from the rock everybody say moses and the water from the rock good job my young students so as you'll recall the story begins in the book of genesis where god makes a promise god says abraham i'm gonna bless you and make you one guy one woman into a great nation and when god makes a promise God keeps the promise. And sure enough, Abraham had a child and that child had children and soon Israel had become a great nation and they were flourishing in a land known as Egypt. And for years, it was a wonderful time in the history of the Israelites. But then, a new pharaoh came along and the new pharaoh saw the Israelites and said, whoa, I'm not going to have a good relationship with these people and the Pharaoh chose to abuse and eventually oppress and ultimately enslave our people long ago. And so our people cried out and they said, God, what happened to your promise? And when God's people cry out, God always hears the cry. So God called his servant Moses. And God said to Moses, God said, I'm going to free my people, Moses. Therefore, you go confront Pharaoh. Because doesn't God just seem to work that way? God says God's going to do something, so you go and do it with him. Oh, I'd like to talk to you about that, God. I digress. So Moses confronts Pharaoh, and after a whole bunch of back and forth, the Israelites, after generations of slavery, are freed from this horrible circumstance. And so they just hightail it out of there, making their way towards freedom, but almost immediately they bump up against the Red Sea. And they go, hold on, God. Did you free us just to die at the Red Sea? But no. For a second time, God shows up and stops the the Egyptian army and all their chariots. And remember, not just everybody has chariots. The Egyptians, lots of chariots. Israel, no chariots. Chariots are a very scary thing in the ancient world. But God frees them again, bringing them safely across the Red Sea. Now, at this point in the story, kids, we're going to stop. Because God's just done an amazing thing twice over in the lives of our people. And these are the stories that we tell because this is the God that we worship. But I want to let you know something, young children. And if you haven't realized this yet... I'm sorry, but you're going to realize it soon. It's something that was true of our ancestors. It's something that's true of all people. And it's actually something, I'm sorry, but it's true of you as well. Here's what that something is. We have a great ability to really mess things up for ourselves. This is like deep thoughts from the ancient Jewish teacher. See... The moment the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea, having been twice saved, their leader, Moses, and another leader, Miriam, they write this amazing song of worship. And that song is a song that Jewish people were taught and memorized and sang over and over. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's very long, but here's some of the highlights of the song that they sing. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. In your unfailing love, God, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Lord reigns forever and ever. These were the words written down to capture just how great the faith of the Jewish people was in the God who saved them. In a sense, it was saying, no matter what comes our way, we will continue to trust in God. They wrote it down. So they're across the Red Sea, and now they go on this really giant complex, caravan-style backpacking trip that they don't know this yet, but it's about to last 40 years in the wilderness. And as they go, they have to stop and make camp every so often. And this is a complicated feat because if you do the math, there may be as many as 3 million people in the Israelite nation at this point, which means food is a big deal. Water is a big deal. Sanitation is a big deal. Laws and a judicial system and and organized, this is a complicated work. But remember, remember the amazing stuff God has just done. Remember, it says, you will lead us. That's what the prayer says on the screen. We know God will lead us. So they get to the next campsite, a campsite called Meribah, if you want to, uh, we'll, we'll actually get to where you can read about it later. And they get to the campsite and they're setting it up and they realize something. They have a problem. There's not enough water at the campsite. And that's a big deal because water is a big deal. And so they're all like, What are we going to do? Because there's no water and we need water. Do we got to pack up camp again? It takes a little while to pack up camp. And so you know what they say? They say, Hey, Don't worry about it. Our God has always provided, and he will provide again. Remember, he reigns forever. That's what they say. Oh, no, that's actually not what they say. In spite of the fact that they know this to be true, here's what they say. They go to Moses, and they're mad. They say, Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? In another version of the story, you can read it in Numbers chapter 20, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? Oh, terrible place. Do you remember when Pharaoh was like, hey, yeah, you're going to keep making bricks, except now you got to gather your own straw and still make the same number of bricks, and actually, I'm just going to double the quota at the same time. Do you remember? That was a terrible place. This is not a terrible place. Turns out God is unendingly gracious. And so in spite of their faithlessness, he still says to Moses, Moses, all right, come on. All right, I get it, you're mad. The people are acting like children. Come on over. All you're going to do is you're going to take the staff. You're going to hit the rock. Water's going to come out. We're going to be okay. To which we all go, enough water for three million people and their livestock? Like, what came out of the rock? Whoa! I don't know. But children, the story that we have to realize, that's been proven to us by our own people generation, generations ago and time and time again since then, is that the Israelites at this time, despite God's overwhelming faithfulness, When they were faced with the next hard thing, Israel decided to fight with each other, to grumble against Moses and complain to God, instead of turning in faith to God. And the same thing that the Israelites learned long ago, I hope by learning this story, we might take that lesson to heart today. Good job, class. It's lunchtime. Go ahead and get your lunchboxes out. And so you just had that happy memory from your childhood float through your mind. As you're sitting in your Christian congregation now reading this sermon that's been written and sent to you by a pastor that your community knows, and as you read the letter, or as you're listening to the letter be read, here's the passage that you listen to you want to read along, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 3. This is just one short verse. Hebrews chapter number 3, verse number 12. And as a brief little plug, um, if you didn't know, we have a church app where I put some of these slides, and there's space for note-taking, and all the scriptures are right in there. And you can actually download any notes you take. You can download them straight into like a Google Doc or into whatever you like to use to organize your notes. It's a really great app. Just search sent cove at the app store of your choice sent cove like you know centennial covenant but it's shorter sent you get it ah commercial break over you should have had time to find hebrews 3 now chapter 3 verse 12 see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Would you pray with me? God, it's your voice that we want to listen to. It's your word that we want to hear. So help us through these words to hear your voice. Amen. Um, I used to have a zip line in my backyard. I used to because it broke. And at the by the end of the story, you might know how it broke. But we had some, a bunch of kids over and we were out on the zip line, you know, whizzing them back and forth across the backyard. And it's a lot of fun. But the thing is, when you have multiple kids, especially when some of your kids are younger kids, um, you know, th- there's, there's some problems that get created. And so a number of people, maybe two, three children are, in, are on the zip line. I'd hung a hammock from it to increase the number of children we could, because this is a good idea. So there's like three kids in the hammock zipping across the yard on the zipline. And I'm sitting at the table in my backyard and I look up and I see Asa, who at this point, I mean, he's still little, but he's like two years old and he's like toddling straight into the path of the zipline. So I immediately do some very complicated mental math, right? Like trigonometry, physics, like velocity. And I realize there's no way that I'm going to get to Asa in time to save him from the impending collision. However, another one of either my children or the other children in the backyard, who knows, I've got a fuzzy memory of the moment, appears to be close enough to do something about it. However, all my mental energy has been spent doing complicated (laughs) mathematics, so the only thing that comes out of my mouth is, watch out! And as far as my memory tells me, it worked. Whatever child was there grabbed Asa and moved him out of the way, and disaster was averted. Here's the thing about the phrase, watch out. You're going to be amazed at the depth of my insight when I say this to you right now. People yell, watch out, when there's danger. Yeah? Yeah? Now, the author of the Hebrews did not use... The phrase watch out because the author didn't speak English, so he definitely didn't use the phrase. But what the very first word of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 is the very first word is blepete. Everybody say blepete. It's a great word. It means to be able to see, to take in the sight of something, to pay especially close attention, to be ready to learn process information, develop an awareness to orient yourself in a particular direction. The first word in the book, or in Hebrews 3.12, blepete, is an imperative. It's a command. It's got some emphasis to it. I imagine that ancient Jewish or Greek Moms and dads, when their kids had attached a zip line to the local aqueduct and were about to crash into one of their infants toddling around, I bet they would have yelled, In the NIV, it's translated, see to it. But I think that's not quite the urgency. I think the better translation would be, watch out. So I want to preach a sermon that I've titled, Watch Out. Because the author to Hebrews is telling us that there's something dangerous in the world we live in, and that danger is something that's proven the ability to do harm in generations long ago, it's proven it's dangerous to people all around us, and it's proven dangerous in our lives as well. And in order to understand the danger, the author uses a couplet, a pair of phrases in repetition And the main ideas of the couplet are, first, sin and unbelief, and second, the living God. So what does the author mean by watch out that you do not have a sinful and unbelieving heart? What does the author mean when they talk about sin and unbelief? Now, in order to give us a a an understanding of that, they actually give us a little help. The verses just before verse 12, if you want to look in your scripture, there's a quotation of Psalm 95. Uh, So if you look at Hebrews 3, I think verse 7, you can read a quotation of Psalm 95. Here's what the author to Hebrews writes, quoting the psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Now, if I were to just ask, if I were to just poll this room and have taken a little survey and say, what, what do we mean? When, when we hear the word sin, what comes to our mind? And I would guess that when we hear the word sin, what comes to our mind might be things like to miss the mark, To speak or act or do wrongly. To offend God. And these are really valuable, important ways to understand the word sin. See, we we live in a cause and effect world. If you make wrong, hurtful, harmful choices, actions, words, there will be, by and large, wrong, hurtful, harmful consequences to those choices. The need to understand that there is right and wrong and good and bad, and we need to become people to do the hard work of differentiating between them, that's critical. It's critical to our well-being, to the well-being of those we love. And in fact, the reality that we can really mess ourselves up, or mess our lives up, is something that people across religious traditions, across cultural traditions, have observed in many ways. Uh, The author, Henry David Thoreau, captured it a bit hauntingly when he said this. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. He was reflecting on the way that we know we can really mess our lives up and sometimes we just suffer hopelessly in that knowledge, even to our grave. It's a rather depressing little thought. Or in a bit of a twist on it, a more modern author, uh, the lead singer of the, of the band One Republic, uh, um, he said, everything that kills me makes me feel alive. It was a song exploring how even though there's things that I know are bad or hurtful or wrong, something in me is like drawn to them. And, and why is that? So, sin is Sin is differentiating between good, bad, right, wrong. We need to understand it because we can hurt ourselves, we can hurt people we love if we're not serious about that. But now we come back to the author in Hebrews and we think, okay, the author in Hebrews quoted Psalm ninety-five and then gave a warning against sin. Go back to Psalm. Go back to Psalm ninety-five. Sorry, Sean. I, I, uh, um, it says it said what the author of Hebrews wrote is. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion or during the time of testing. Now, interesting, if you want, go turn to Psalm 95 in your Bible. You can do it right now if you want. Otherwise, I'll tell you what you'd find. If you go to Psalm 95, you're not going to see the words rebellion or testing. You're going to see the name of two places. Merica... I can't remember the two... And Meribah and something else. So in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it's the name of two places. But the author of Hebrews writes, rebellion and testing. Well, if you look at the name of the two places, and if you're a good, well-educated Jewish boy or girl who paid attention, you'd say, wait a minute, I know what happened at Meribah. That was the place that the Israelites in Exodus chapter 17, having just been rescued twice by God, didn't have water. And they argued with one another and yelled at Moses and tested God. They found themselves standing in the desert thirsty. And let's be clear about something. Water... You can jump ahead to the slide. Uh, Something about water. There's a slide with something about water. Ah, That's all right. Water is necessary for life. I mean, if you don't have water, you can live a long time with no food, right? But you don't live very long without water. So these people are in a life-or-death situation. And where do they look when they find themselves in a life-or-death situation? Do they look to the God who has proven himself faithful time and time and time again? No. They look somewhere else. If that's the backdrop... I think we could give another definition of sin that for me, it's like looking at it from another angle that that sort of opens it up in a pretty meaningful but also challenging way. Uh, I think, considering the context, we could say sin is looking for life where we know it cannot be found. That's exactly what the Israelites did at Meribah in the desert. They rebelled and quarreled and tested God instead of turning to God, the one whom they knew could provide. You could say it this way. Despite generations of God's faithfulness, from Abraham onwards, when faced with a life-or-death situation, the Israelites turned to fighting with one another instead of turning in faith to God. And the author wants to really drive this home. So he uses um, a writing construct that was really uh, familiar to any Hebrew audience. It's called a couplet. It's most common in poetry, but you can use it anywhere. And a couplet is simply where you say one idea in two different ways. And the couplet that the pastor uses in Hebrews 3.12 is he talks about a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Watch out! So that you do not have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But if this really is a couplet, that means that those two lines, sinful, unbelieving, turning away from the living God, are just different ways to say the same thing. We use repetition because it helps us memorize. And so we could actually rephrase it a little bit to say A sinful, unbelieving heart is a heart that looks for life where it knows it's never going to be found. That's what the Israelites did long ago. They were faced with a life or death situation and they knew they could trust God, but they didn't turn to God. That's what people across cultures around the world have found ourselves doing time and time again. We we know it's going to hurt us and it's not going to turn out well, but we do it anyway. That's what... I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we find ourselves tempted to do in our own lives still today. But knowing that that could happen, that that does happen, isn't enough. We have to ask ourselves, now that I know it, what am I going to do about it? What what am I going to do to become the sort of person who when I'm looking dangerous things in the eye and I've heard the warning, watch out, I can learn the lessons from faithful people long ago and maybe I can choose to look at the reliable source of life. I've got three ideas for ways we could try to become that sort of person. I've got a question. I've got an ancient Christian practice and I've got a metaphor or or I guess just an idea on how to look at this. So first of all, the the, the sermon is about watch out. It's a warning. It's a warning shouted from this pastor long ago, reverberating through the ages into our ears today. Watch out so that when the life or death realities of the world come our way, we don't go looking for life in the wrong places, which means the question we have to ask ourselves, and I I apologize for this often because I, I write these questions down and it's like I try to go, God what should I say? What's the text saying? But sometimes I write these things down and I'm like, I don't want to say that. I don't want to ask that of myself. Are you looking for life? Somewhere that you know you're not going to find it? Is, is there a hurt? Is there a brokenness? Is there a wound? Is there a danger in your life? And you know you need some healing, you know you need some strength, but you keep going back to the place where you never find anything but more hurt. You wouldn't be the first person to say yes, because we've got the story of the Israelites from Exodus 17, thousands of years ago. But don't be the last person to keep looking in the wrong place. Rather, there's an ancient Christian practice that... I said in my All Church email, it, I think it has a, a messy history because it's been applied in different ways. And I think it's been applied maybe even in some hurtful ways. But, but just because some people can take something good and, and use it for bad doesn't mean this ancient and biblical practice doesn't have a, a powerful potential for good in our lives. See, if we, if we can acknowledge, if we can say yes to this question. Yeah, woo, Carl, yep, I do. Yep, when I'm hurting, when I'm suffering, when I have needs, I look where I know I'm not going to find life. I admit I do that. If you're willing to do that, then the practice that is God's offer of a cure for that sick condition is the practice of confession. Confession is when we just say, You know what, God? I've been messing this up long enough, and so I'm going to stop, and I'm just going to name it to you. When I was a kid, growing up at Zion Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, every Sunday we would pray a prayer of confession, uh, so much so that it's still been committed to my memory. I'm going to read it out loud to you now, and I'd encourage you to just listen, and we're going to pray it. I'll invite you to pray it out loud a little later when we celebrate communion together. Here's the prayer of confession that I learned as a kid. God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin, and we cannot free ourselves. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, both by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. I've thought to myself, why did we do that every Sunday? Why is the prayer of confession one that we in our lives need to repeat over and over again? Why is it that even though we've learned the lesson once, we need to learn it again and again? I'd really like it if we could learn a lesson once and then just apply that lesson from here on forward. That would make life much easier in some ways. Um, And the final thought I had came from the book I've mentioned, I think, every Sunday of this series. We'll see how long it keeps going, but it just keeps... Really challenging me. Uh, Peter and his wife, Jerry Schizero, after more than three decades of of ministry in um, a church here in the U.S., they wrote this book that's their picture of what really healthy Jesus following looks like. And they write seven marks of a mature Jesus follower. He uses the phrase emotionally healthy, but I I think emotionally healthy just means mature, whole life, integrated. And one of the marks he talks about is this. He says, a mature Christian follows the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. And I don't think Schizero has anything particularly against America's ability to change God into our own image. But rather, he's an American pastor who's pastored an American church. And here's what Scazzaro knows. Just like the Israelites thousands of years ago at the base of Mount Sinai, when they were literally watching God in thunderous lightning at the top of the mountain, they're like, ah, I'm going to make a little golden calf instead. Just like they were able to try and twist God to fit their image, every culture, every country, every person, we love to try and twist God and conform God into our image and our preferences instead of letting God transform us into his image. The biblical word for this is idolatry. When we take anything in our lives and we put it above God. And the fact of the matter is we can do this with anything. We can even do this with good things. And that to me is one of the many reasons that confession is a practice we need to come back to time and time again. And confession is a way that, like our sermon series title says, it's a way that we can interrupt that cycle, kind of reset things. And instead of our eyes and our hearts and our minds getting so focused, drawn into, tempted by the brokenness we see in the world around us, we see in our lives Confession can lift our eyes up to the God who is the one and only source of life in every circumstance or hardship we might face. And here's the good news. Saying that is valuable. We need to remind ourselves, but, but God didn't just say that to us. God showed that to us. In the last day of his life, Jesus was gathered with the 12 men closest to him. One of them would even, in just a short time, would betray Jesus. I think betrayal might be one of the most relationally excruciating things humans can go through. And in that room, before eating a meal with them, Jesus took a loaf of bread. And he gave thanks Oh, what it is to give thanks to God, even when we're looking at the hurt that's about to come our way. And after he gave thanks, Jesus broke it. He said to his disciples what he would say to every one of us if he was physically here today in this room. He said, take and eat. And when you eat this bread, remember me because this bread is my body broken for you. After the meal was done, he took a cup and giving thanks, he said, this cup is a new covenant. A covenant is a promised relationship. And the covenant is so secure that I'm making it in my own blood. Christ giving his life So that the life of God might be yours. And the broken bread and the shed blood of the cup are a sacrament. We eat and drink, but God's grace is at work in us. So here's my invitation knowing the promise of life that God gives and that it is secure and available for all of us all the time. Would you join me in praying a prayer of confession before we receive the sacrament of bread and cup in the Lord's Supper? God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, both by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God, as we... Come to the table as we eat this bread and drink this cup. I pray that we would know that through our actions, you, the living God, are present and at work. That you are the one and only source of eternal life who has promised that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and you will forgive us all of our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we might find our life in you. The table is set. I invite you to come and receive the Lord's communion. Amen.